Hello and welcome to Being Well. I'm Forrest Hansen. If you're new to the podcast, this is where we explore the practical science of lasting well-being. And if you've listened before, welcome back. On today's episode, we're focusing on continuing to improve our relationships. The way we do relationships has changed a lot during my lifetime alone. People are getting married later. They're less likely to have children, uh, much to the chagrin of both of my parents. And we're generally more focused on getting our psychological and emotional needs met. Put it simply, we're looking for relationships that are fulfilling rather than just functional. I'm joined by a wonderful therapist and author today who focuses on giving people the tools they need to communicate, navigate hard times, and create deeper connections with other people, Elizabeth Earnshaw. Liz is a licensed marriage and family therapist, the founder of A Better Life Therapy, and the author of I Want This to Work, an inclusive guide to navigating the most difficult relationship issues we face in the modern age. You might also know her as Liz Listens on Instagram, where she's helped countless people transform their relationships. Before we get into my conversation with Liz, a couple of quick reminders. If you've been enjoying the show, please subscribe to us through the platform of your choice. And hey, maybe even leave a rating and a positive review. It really does help us out. Finally, if you'd like to support us in other ways, you can find us on Patreon. It's patreon.com slash beingwellpodcast. And for the cost of just a couple cups of coffee a month, you can support the show and you'll receive a bunch of bonuses in return. So Liz, thanks so much for joining me today. How are you doing? I'm good. Thank you for having me. Yeah, it's great to do this with you. Uh, I love your Instagram. That was how I first ran into your work. And we got a copy of your book, and I just thought it was fantastic. So I thought that it would be great to, to do this today. I would love to start like just kind of briefly here with your background. What drew you to relationship counseling, and how would you kind of describe your approach? So initially, I was going to be a teacher, and I realized very <laughs> quickly that I was a terrible teacher because I liked working <laughs> with people one-on-one -on -one about like, what's going on? How are you feeling? What are you thinking? that is a really bad idea for classroom management. So I quickly realized I was going to have to find something else to do. And I had no clue what it would be. And I was driving down the highway one day and there was a billboard that said, you should sign up for this couples therapy program. And I thought, <laughs> I should sign up. <laughs> this is the first time I've ever heard of one of those billboards actually getting somebody to, to buy something. So this is fantastic. It converted. It works. <laughs> <laughs> so I drove home and I actually applied for that program only. And I got in, thank goodness, because I had no direction in life at the time. And I'm so glad I did because this is truly what I'm called to do. I love supporting people and building better relationships. I think from my work with individuals and couples, I found that it's relationships that influence our mental health so deeply. And that when we have supportive relationships, when we feel like we can navigate them, we, we can thrive in a very different way. So, you know, since then I've gotten my license, I've become a certified Gottman therapist. I've done all of my focus on couples and relationships, but it started with mm -hmm. a billboard. That's honestly a fantastic origin story because a lot of the time what happens, of course, is we, you know, I ask people this question and they give a lovely, a deeply touching, but like a very kind of typical response that you hear around, wow, I just felt so called to do this work my whole life and I knew exactly where I was going to end up. But I think that it's very consistent with a lot of people's actual lived experience to be like, yeah, I was driving down the highway one day and I saw this billboard and I was like, crap, why not? You know, so, that was it. so I think that that's like a <laughs> lovely origin story. Actually, I really like that. Um, You said something really quick there that I want to just kind of get a little quick clarification on. Again, maybe just as a framing for what we're talking about today. You mentioned being a Gottman certified therapist. Like, what does that mean exactly? Yeah, so there are several methods of couples therapy. I would say the primary methods are Gottman method, emotionally focused therapy, PACT, RLT. So there's these different theories around what helps couples be successful. Mm -hmm. And one of those yeah. is the Gottman method, which is based on decades and decades of research with Dr. John Gottman and Dr. Julie Gottman. They've done so much work with couples. But becoming a Gottman certified therapist actually takes longer than becoming a master's in couples therapy. It's a several yeah. year process of consulting and all sorts of stuff just to make sure that you're 
really working with couples in a way that's going to be helpful to them and help them create change. Mm -hmm. So you've, of course, worked with a lot of couples individually, and you've also kind of founded a, a therapy collective. So you're talking to other clinicians who are working with a lot of couples. And I wanted to ask you, just like because of your position where you've seen so many people navigate these different issues, during the pandemic, some people's relationships got better, some people's relationships got worse. And I'm just sort of wondering how that kind of spread of what you're seeing in the office has changed over the last couple of years or 18 months. Yeah, it's actually been amazing and incredibly interesting to watch because I don't see a lot of neutrality in it. The couples I work mm, with mm -hmm. have either gotten way better yeah. or they've gotten way worse. And what mm. I would say is probably a part of that is their issues that existed prior were still there. And if those issues were solved by more time together, they thrived. And if those issues were exacerbated by more time together, then yeah, obviously it got totally. worse. So, you know, yeah. I was working with couples. Their main conflict was that they didn't have enough time together. They had little kids. They were working full-time jobs. They were dropping off at daycare and driving 45 minutes to work and getting home at 8 p.m. And then they were at each other's throats. But mm -hmm. of course they were. They were exhausted and stressed and as soon as they had more time to be together and to not have to have all of these outside stressors, their relationship started to improve. Mm -hmm. And then I have other couples who being together is the problem. They don't know how to communicate. Mm. They are disrespectful towards each other. They don't like each other very much. And so as you can imagine, being stuck in a house together or if they weren't stuck in a house together, but navigating a high-stress situation is just going to make those problems worse. There's a, a great phrase from, I think, I want to say it's Esther Perel. It's mating in captivity. I think that it's actually the title of one of her books. Uh -huh. And I think that that's been like such a wonderful encapsulation of a lot of what people have experienced over the last you know 18 months. You're really trapped with a person. So your relational capacity with them gets really strained. Yeah. Are there kind of like key skills that you've seen that have differentiated maybe some of the couples that did better during this time versus some of the ones that did worse? Absolutely. I mean, I think one mm -hmm. of the biggest is how they respond to stress, of course. And yeah. so, cool. you know, we've, we've had research that shows and then just anecdotally, I know that when people can navigate stress well together, their relationship mm -hmm. does much better. And when couples can't navigate stress well together, they obviously get into stronger conflict loops. And so the people that are able to say, yes, this is very stressful, but I know how to take care of it within myself. So mm. I know how to regulate what's happening in my body. I know how to take measures to make sure I'm not bringing all of that stress into the home. I have outlets, all of that. And then also are able to say, when you're stressed, I know how to co-regulate with you. Mm. So not only do I know how to regulate with me, I know how to regulate with you. Those couples have been able to navigate this differently than couples who either struggle to navigate their own stress or dysregulate with their partner when mm -hmm. their partner yeah. is stressed or when the world is stressed. And mm -hmm. I think that's something that all partnerships have had to to tackle over the past, you know, it's been over a year now, but yeah. over the past year or so. We use words like co-regulation and dysregulation fairly regularly on the podcast. And I think that people have kind of intuitive sense of what these words mean. But would you mind kind of like painting a picture of what co-regulation looks like practically inside of a partnership? Absolutely. So we first yeah. notice it with babies and mothers and mm. fathers and parents. And so you can imagine what do people do with babies to co-regulate? They lower their voice. Mm -hmm. They keep their own bodies calm. They do a whole bunch of things actually for themselves so that they don't freak out. Mm -hmm. You know, I think back to when I had a baby I wanted to scream sometimes because my baby was screaming <laughs> yeah. and my body was out of control. I was like, oh my gosh, I just want to throw something. And if I did that, what would happen? My baby would have become more dysregulated. Mm -hmm. My baby would have become more upset. So what I had to do was I had to rock back and forth. I had to hum. I had to lower my voice. We kind of pretend that's for our baby, but actually that's for ourselves. And the same thing 
is what we don't need to rock our partners. That would be a little bit weird. Mm, but mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> when you're thinking about a partner that comes home, let's say after being stuck in traffic sure. for an hour, and they walk in the door and you can tell that they are just not in a good place. Mm. We can dysregulate with them, which would look like saying, what the hell's wrong with you? Sure. Why do you walk in here like this? Yeah. Or co-regulating with an adult looks like being like, whoo, I can tell you had a tough day. Mm-hmm. And if you notice that your own body is overwhelmed, being able to say, I'm going to give you a couple minutes. I'll be back in. Could I get you something to drink? I'm going to get myself something to drink. And really focusing on how you're keeping yourself calm because your partner will feel that. Mm, They will mm -hmm. feel if you're calm. And if they feel that you're calm, they can start to regulate. If they feel that you're not calm, then they're going to become even more uncalm than they entered the door. Yeah, totally. I mean, I've definitely seen this pattern and I've I've seen it not because I'm a counselor, but because I've lived it painfully in my own life here, where somebody kind of walks in the door and they're carrying that tension from the day or they're carrying that distress. And you can feel the distress in kind of a palpable way if you're somebody who has like any attunement ability at all. This doesn't require like deep empathy. You can normally tell when somebody's in a state like that. And I'll feel myself start to get affected by it. And because I don't like how it's making me feel, sometimes you say a comment, you point to an issue that doesn't really need to get raised in that moment, but it's something that the other person is doing that's kind of problematic. And for me, at least, the more that I've kind of investigated that, it feels like it's a very defensive thing where I'm like, I don't like how you're making me feel right now based on the energy that you're bringing into the space. So I'm going to kind of like do something to make you look at your side of the street as opposed to thinking about how I can better regulate myself. Is that like a pattern that you see other people do or is that just a me thing here? No, I think that's how, yeah. I think we all feel that way, you know? I've, okay, good good to know. Just like you, you know, I'm a therapist. I talk about this all of the time. And if my husband walks in with like some sort of weird energy, mm-hmm. there's this part of me that wants to be like, why are you walking around like that? Or Yeah, it's very oppositional. It's very oppositional and it's it's a little entitled. Too, to think yeah. like, oh, totally. You should walk into my space and make it peaceful. And like, how dare mm-hmm. you interrupt my functioning right now? But yeah. I think you're right. I think it's defensive, defensiveness and this like discomfort that we feel. And I think this happens in couples a lot. We feel discomfort, but we don't name it for what it is. Mm. We start to project, we start to criticize, we start to show contempt. We do all of this stuff to deal with our discomfort. And often it has to do with making the other person the bad guy. Mm -hmm. Instead of just being able to say, you know, even in that moment, who, honey, what's going Mm. on? You just walked in Mm -hmm. and you look really upset, even if you want to own it. I'm actually in a really Mm -hmm. bad mood. So I'm going to go in the other room right now because Mm -hmm. we probably shouldn't be in the same space. But being able to recognize what's happening for you is actually a huge piece of being able to co-regulate. No, I think that's totally right on. And we've already kind of jumped ahead to, inside of your book, you introduced this great model that I wanted to talk with you about, this model of relationships that has kind of four stages. And we're talking right now, I think, mostly about kind of the third stage, which is tension. But I would love it if you kind of explained that model to people, because I think it's just a great outline for how relationships work. Sure. So when we first meet someone, we're in the infatuation stage. We are pumped full of love chemicals. So we're kind of like drugged. And we actually start to magnify how great the other person is. And we minimize anything that's annoying about them. So it's not to say Mm. we don't notice it, because I think we do. But we say things like, oh, that's just their quirk. It's cute. I don't know. It doesn't bother me this time like it used to with people. And we really are, we're wired to not pay attention to that because biologically, I think we want to mate. So it's like, you don't have to pay attention to the fact that they are a mess. Just mate with them. (laughs) (laughs) Populate the world. It's very important. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) So then after that, though, we don't maintain all these hormones all the time. and. Mm -hmm. they start to dip. And when they start to dip, we start to have all of that removed. And we start to think, you know, hey, I 
I'm actually into this person for reasons beyond maybe that biological drive. And I'm realizing who they are. And I'm realizing mm-hmm. that, yes, these good things exist. And that stuff that I minimized irritates me. I'm noticing who they are as a human being. And it's in that stage that, you know, a lot of people actually break up. Mm-hmm. So they're like, eh, you know, this isn't the person for me. And I'm recognizing that. And so it ends. Or we move through that stage and we stay together. But what starts to happen, and this is in all relationships, is we start to face stressors together. Life isn't just dates and late nights and all these exciting things that we do in the beginning. It becomes real. And we have to move in together or we have to pay bills together. We have happy, stressful moments you know, somebody gets a new job. Some We have a vacation we have to plan. Mm-hmm. Flight gets delayed. And what starts to happen is we start to realize how the other person navigates stress. Yeah. And so we get into a tension stage with them. And that we move in and out of. You'll have that your whole relationship. It's not going to disappear. Mm-hmm. But some couples, they can face tension and they can navigate it and they can overcome it, and they learn about each other, and they figure out solutions and all sorts of stuff. And others, they get really stuck. They get stuck in conflict cycles. And some couples, I think, stay in tension stages most of their relationship. You know, they'll be 90 years old, and it's like, two of you never learn to accept each other. Yeah. Other couples, though, move in and out, in and out, but they have a baseline of what that final stage is that I talk about, which is acceptance. And Mm. doesn't mean you like everything. Doesn't mean you never argue. It means that you've decided, I kind of know who this person is. Mm -hmm. And by being in a relationship with them, I'm accepting it. Yeah. And I'm going to stop fighting with them to change who they are at their core. It's okay to ask people to to change in some capacity, but to change who they are at their core. I'm not going to expect that my partner who has never been super organized is all of a sudden going to become organized. I'm just going to say, mm-hmm. I love them and that's part of the package. And so those are the different stages that couples often move through throughout their relationship and they either break up or they keep going. Mm, okay. So you've seen a lot of these cycles working with people. You've seen a lot of these patterns. You have many, many reps kind of understanding what this looks like. And there are a lot of people who are listening to this right now who are pretty darn settled on who they're with. And, you know, of course, there are deal breakers that can emerge inside of a relationship that might change how settled somebody is. But they're basically looking for how can I make this better right now, understanding that I'm pretty darn committed to this person. But then there are a lot of people who are making a choice of one kind or another. They're making a choice to get into a relationship, a choice to get out of a relationship, a choice to change the stage of the relationship from like dating to getting married, something like that. Having seen so many of these partnerships, what do you think are, I'm trying to find kind of the right way to put this, maybe like the key deal breakers around how other people handle conflict. Like what are some of the things that have consistently indicated to you whether or not a partnership will end up working out well, particularly in terms of how people manage conflict? Mm, Such a good question. So Mm. I think that a couple important things to look at is how does the other person navigate power? That is a really important thing to pay attention to. That's really good. I like that. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I think that if they aren't able to share power, Mm. that is a warning sign. And it's something to really consider as you're building a relationship. And I don't only like to talk about what other people are doing. I always like to encourage people to think of themselves. So how do you navigate power? You know, are you Mm -hmm. able to allow for influence? Do you seek out other thoughts and opinions? Do you make unilateral decisions or do you bring in the other person? Do you have to win arguments all of the time? Or are you willing to recognize that there's nuance and different perceptions? So that is one thing that I always tell people to look for is power. And on the worst end of the spectrum, power is the gateway to abuse, right? So if people aren't navigating power with a sense of fairness and equanimity and all of that, then there is a risk for abuse and conflict. And so you obviously want to steer clear of that. 
Another thing that I think is important to look at, and of course I'll say this because I'm a Gottman therapist, but is the utilization of the four horsemen. I'm sure you knew I was going to say that. <laughs> <laughs> we'd, we'd already mentioned them a little bit earlier when you had to kind of drop some, drop some breadcrumbs there, but please explain to people what you mean, yeah. Yeah, so, uh, you know, over the research that the Gottmans have done, they found that there's these four communication habits, which I think really help to kind of conceptualize what we do sometimes. Yeah, totally. And they're harmful to relationships, and they can predict, you know, the end of a relationship. They start something off that's called the distance and isolation cascade, which means that the more you use these things, the more distanced and isolated you'll be with each other. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. those four horsemen are criticism, which is taking a problem and making it about a character flaw in the other person. So that would be, you know, my husband comes in late and I am really stressed with my son And instead of saying the problem is that I was, you know, alone dealing with something that is high stress, I say, you are always so thoughtless or you Mm. never think about me. So it's about him being flawed. The second of the horsemen is defensiveness, which is, you know, a pair with criticism. They're in a relationship together. And when people are defensive, They will respond to that by saying, if only you knew how hard my day was, or yeah, that was stressful, but... Um, So there will Mm -hmm. be Mm over-justification, explanation, victim mentality, all of that. The third of the horsemen is stonewalling, exactly as it sounds. It's when someone shows up as a stonewall. So I say... I need more help at nighttime around dinner time. And that would be if my husband, my poor husband, who I'm using as the example, (laughs) 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 that would be if my husband, you know, just looked at me blankly and rolled his eyes and walked away or something and didn't engage with that conversation. And then the fourth of the horsemen is contempt. Contempt is criticism supercharged. And so Mm. it's when we take our criticism and we want up it, by belittling the other person, acting superior to them. And we will use things like mean-spirited sarcasm, you know, hitting them where it hurts. So saying things like, well, your parents must have never taught you how to do X, Y, and Z. Or smirking, rolling our eyes, all of those types of things. When you see these four things, it's not a complete deal breaker Mm. because, and I'm sure you would say the same, you can tell me, but... I use these four things from time to time in my life. Yeah, we've we've all lived that life. Yeah, totally. <laughs> we've all lived that life. I probably lived that life this morning. I got frustrated with my husband <laughs> and I said, you know, you always do X, Y, and Z. And so it's not that it's used, but if it's used chronically, I think that's something to really pay attention to. And if it's used in a stage of the relationship where you wouldn't expect that to be used. So, Hmm. you know, if somebody's already criticizing you during that honeymoon stage, Mm. it's a little Mm -hmm. odd. You know, you're Mm -hmm. not facing stressors together. You shouldn't be that comfortable with each other. And so is it ever good? No. But I think there's times where it's especially, I'll use the word odd, for somebody to be using it (laughs) and can be harmful. Yeah, that's a red flag for sure. It's a red flag. And it doesn't mean they're a bad person. It doesn't mean any of that. But it means that something is there where when there's discomfort within themselves, which we touched on earlier, they're struggling to express it in a way that is respectful. And that's going to help you to navigate things together. And rather, it's being expressed in a way that either shuts you down or shuts the conflict down. Mm. So yeah, I think that looking at the four horsemen, looking at power, those are really important when it comes to conflict. Kind of the flip side of it, what tends to differentiate the couples that get better from the ones that don't? Understanding that there are a lot of different versions of what get better looks like for a relationship. Sometimes get better means you break up with the person. Yeah. But are there kind of common themes that tend to lead to relationship outcomes improving? Yeah, I think that a couple of the common themes, and first of all, I just want to say I love that you said that sometimes people break up and like Mm. that might be getting better as well. Yeah. You know, that's not always a bad thing. It's not a failure. It's actually a very good choice sometimes. 
But couples who tend to navigate conflict together without seeing their relationship devolve tend to be really good at repair. So couples that recover are good at recovering, which means that (laughs) (laughs) they recognize, okay, something not so good just happened. There's a little bit of an injury there. I need to do something about that. And they offer repair. So offering repair means leaning into your relational skills, like using humor, offering affection, problem solving, apologizing, or they accept repair. And both of Mm, those need to mm -hmm. exist. When couples struggle to move out of conflict, they're not very good at recovering, either because they both are willful and stubborn and they're not open to using humor, affection, apologizing, problem solving, whatever it is, because they say, well, I'm not going to do it until the other person does it. They don't deserve it, right? They get into a power struggle. Or Mm -hmm. they're not good at accepting it. So their partner comes and says, whew, I'm so sorry about what just happened. I don't know why we just fought like that. Can I give you a hug? And the other person says, get away from me. I don't want a hug. So when you're trying to figure out how do we start to change our conflict, a lot of it is before the conflict and after it. It's not actually always during it. It's what are you Mm -hmm. doing after, you know? What are you doing to, to go back and process that and to look at what happened, to say sorry, to reconnect, to make plans for what can go better next time? That's what couples who do well and navigate that tension phase well tend to do. Sometimes we feel like we've messed up, you know, and we want to offer that repair to another person. And that can be really challenging. That can be a very emotionally vulnerable place to be. A lot of people were not, uh, repair was not modeled very well in their families of origin. Like, so they didn't see a lot of examples of people repairing well with each other. And so they might not even kind of know what that looks like. But also sometimes we feel like our partner messed up and we want to kind of request repair from them. When it's on our side of the street, things are, I won't say they're easy, they can still be very demanding, but they're simpler because we've got the ball and we're choosing whether or not to throw the ball. When somebody feels like their partner is the person who kind of needs to repair something, What do you think good ways are to kind of go about requesting that? Like, what's good modeling around that? Oh, it's really hard, right? Because, and I think that we could be talking about different, I don't know, categories of of person, right? So sometimes you might need that repair from a partner who's willing to give it to you. And that's very different than if you need it from someone who's not willing to give it to you. So if you have a partner who, and in the moment that you're upset, you might be like, no, they're a jerk. They're not willing to give it to me. But I really want you to Mm -hmm. think about it. If you have a partner who is mostly willing to hear you out, it's okay for you to extend the olive branch first. Putting your heels in the ground, digging in and saying, I'm not going to do anything. I'm not going to make a move. Mm. It's just going to keep you both standing still. So in those moments where you do have someone that wants to work with you, right? I suggest that you say, hey, something happened. Mm -hmm. I don't want us to be feeling this way the rest of the day. I would love for us to talk. Mm -hmm. You don't need to take the accountability. Repair isn't about always taking the accountability. Sometimes it's just the Mm -hmm. olive branch. Sometimes it's just turning towards the person and saying, you know, I'm here and we can talk, which is really important for building a secure relationship, right? If your partner is a good partner, they talk with you, they care about you, and they're not repairing with you, my guess would be there's some insecurity with that. So Mm -hmm. by offering some sort of, you know, secure functioning in that moment where you say, I still, you know, what you did wasn't right, but I still love you and we can talk about it when you're ready, that kind of opens the door. Yeah. Now, we also have partners, sadly, who aren't willing to repair. And this is really hard in couples therapy to deal with really hard in the relationship to deal with because your partner needs to repair to move on, right? They've hurt you. And they're saying no. Mm. 
that is kind of a misuse of power, honestly, right? Yeah, totally. They hold the power to move this forward. You have an openness to doing it with them. This is assuming you have that openness and they're not doing it. And it puts you in a position that's very unfair mm-hmm. where you have to say, well, to make our lives you know, livable, I'll just suck it up. And what will happen is I'll do exactly what they're hoping, which is I'll forget about it and we'll move on and we can avoid it. Or I have to keep fighting with them to get what I need. And then I'm just a pursuer. And I'm just going Mm. at them, asking, asking, asking. And they're saying, no, no, no. Or they're ignoring me and I'm not getting what I need. But either way, you're in a Mm -hmm. really difficult situation. And I think that you know, couples therapy definitely can help in these situations because sometimes you do need that third party mm-hmm. that speaks for you and says, "Yeah, hey, what you're doing right now isn't cool. Like, mm-hmm. I don't know what's happening. Let's talk about it. But you've got to move with your partner here. You can't just be stonewalling mm-hmm. them. But the other piece of this is that you might have to set some limits and boundaries. And that's that's really, really hard with a romantic partner. Mm -hmm. But it might look like saying, this is something that is really important to me. And I can see Mm -hmm. that you're not able to enter into a conversation with me. And until we do that, then this is what I'm going to do to take care of myself. Mm -hmm. I don't know what that would be for you personally. But, you know, if somebody's relating to this, you have to think you might not be able to force them to repair. Mm -hmm. So if not, then what? Yeah. What do you do for yourself? To highlight just a few things that you're saying here really quick, if I had to kind of give my version of like, this is the absolute red flag inside of your relationships, if you're deciding, you know, whether to stay or leave or make a choice about escalating your relationship with a person, it would just be exactly what you've, what you just said there. It's sort of one thing if somebody has poor repair skills due to let's say, bad modeling from childhood, where they had parents who were just really bad at repairing with each other. They never learned the skill set. And so they're awkward and uncomfortable when it comes to moments of repair. Like that's kind of one thing. But if you just have a person who's just like, no, I'm not going to do it, it's very, very challenging to engage in an effective relationship with that partner over the long haul. Because what ends up happening is exactly what you're talking about, where one person just like, keeps on putting sand into this bag that they're carrying around with them, all the little moments where their partner didn't repair, all these little grievances that you have stacked up. And I mean, short of, you know, being a monk, like not many people can kind of live with that baggage for a sustained relationship. And I feel really bad for people who kind of end up in relationships that look like that, where they constantly feel like they have these core needs that aren't getting met because their partner refuses to kind of own up to their content effectively. But I think you see that a lot. Mm, A lot, a lot, a lot. I see it so much with couples who come into couples therapy, particularly after betrayals, you know, that, Mm, and mm -hmm. like you said, it's so sad and it gives so few options Mm -hmm. and it puts the ball in the court of the person who maybe wasn't initially responsible. Mm. And that's something I talk about a lot with people in that situation, which is that your choice here isn't fair, but it's your choice and you have to make it. Mm. And it's not fair. It's not fair that the other person did something wrong and they're not willing to navigate that and make amends. Mm -hmm. And that now it leaves you with either sucking it up or ending the relationship or pulling away or distancing or whatever. And because it's your life and it's your emotional health and your relational well-being, those are the moments where there might not be a relational solution. The solution might have to be an individual solution where you're taking care of yourself. So alongside working with couples, I'm sure you've had plenty singles come into the office who are, you know, a single with you, but there is an invisible third party in the room, which is their partner. Mm-hmm. They're asking you a lot of relationship questions. Maybe they thought that they were coming in to resolve a personal problem, but it turns out that it's a relationship problem, actually. And I'm sure that you've had interactions with somebody where you're sitting in front of them and you're like, wow, this person just has to get out of this relationship. Like, this just isn't working for them. But for a variety of different reasons, people might not want to do that for, you know, just as you just said. What are some of the things that you kind of do with people to maybe resource them or give them the tools they need to kind of get to that point where they can say, you know what, 
it's probably best for me to experience a little bit of, or maybe a lot of emotional discomfort now in order to preserve myself for the long haul? Yeah, that's such a good question. And I love Mm -hmm. how you're bringing to light reality, Mm -hmm. which is it's not always easy to just end a relationship. You know, you have a shared history, you have shared goals, you might have shared bills or shared children or, you know, there's, there's a lot. And so it's so easy sometimes for our friends and family to say, you should just break up. Like you're unhappy. Mm -hmm. And that's just not how life always works. And so one of the first things, well, not the first thing I do, but one of the main things that I want to do is offer the safety for them to explore it without pressure. Mm. Because exploring that usually doesn't feel safe anywhere else. So it doesn't feel safe at home because that's a hard conversation to have with somebody. You know, I might want to leave you. So they're not exploring it there. If they're exploring it with their friends and family, doesn't feel expansive. It's very, okay, well, what are you going to do about it? Move on. So one of the most important things that I do is I say, it's okay. It's okay to take your time. This is a big deal. We can talk about it. And I really like to have people look at different trajectories. So what will life look like if we stay in this relationship? Mm -hmm. What does it look like? No judgment. You know, let's, We can say, you know, this is what it will look like and let's look at how you would make that work and what do you think about that and what would you have to give up in order for it to look like this and da-da-da-da. Now, if you went the other direction, what would life look like? What would be your losses? What would be hard? What would be good about it? And most people, they'll, they'll really struggle because there will be grief on both sides. There will be benefits on both sides. And so that's why people get stuck, right? But as they talk about it and as they can start to imagine what it would look like to go in the direction they want to go in, whether it's really committing and leaning into the relationship or exiting it, that's when we can start to look at resources. So, oh, wow, this sounds like it would feel really good to you to live on your own, but you're telling me the fear is you can't afford it. Mm -hmm. So why don't we talk Mm -hmm. about that? You know, is are there workarounds? Do you need do you need that apartment right away? Is there this other possibility that would lead you there? So that's what I really like to help people do is I like to give them permission to explore without an agenda because mm-hmm. there aren't really many places where they can do that. I think that part of what we're kind of dancing around in, in this whole conversation is this dynamic that you talk about in the book, which is just the principle of kind of interdependence, where we have a lot of memes inside of the culture of, we're going to get into some of those in a little bit of like, oh, your partner should be your everything. Or, oh, you know, if you have any, if you're in a relationship with somebody and they're at all, quote unquote, clingy, that's just a huge red flag and you should never be with that person. When in truth, there's this dance inside of all of our relationships between, as my dad likes to say, intimacy and autonomy, where we've got the desire to be intimate. We also got the desire to be autonomous and we're balancing these two things. And again, inside of the book, there was this section that I really liked where you talked about Uh, respect, responsiveness, and reliability. And I would just love if you could explore that a little bit here. Yeah. So as I work with couples and I study like different couples therapy modalities, I've noticed that Mm -hmm. the same things show up and again, again, and again, and again. Yeah. And those are, you know, we want to help people learn to respect each other. We want to help people learn to be responsive to each other. And we want reliability in our relationships. And if you look across any of the couple's modalities, they all are saying that in different ways. And so when we build a healthy relationship, we have respect in it, which means essentially that I value you, I admire you, I take you into consideration, I think about you, I speak kindly to you. And with respect, it has to go three ways. So it has to have mutuality. So I do this for you, you do it for me. and. I can do it for myself in the relationship. So I can respect Mm, myself mm -hmm. in this space with you. When we have an interdependent relationship, the same with responsiveness. Responsiveness is attuning to each other. I attune to you. I, I respond when you're having a tough time. I respond when you're having a good time. This does not mean that you're texting back all of the time. I don't want that to get misrepresented. It means that your partner feels like most of the time if they reach out for you, you're there. 
and that you care about them. But responsiveness goes all directions also. You need your partner to feel that way about you. And you also need to respond to your own needs in a relationship. Mm-hmm. And then the last would be reliability. So reliability is having trust. It's having commitment. It's being able to predict most of the time that your partner is going to be there for you. And if you can't, it creates insecurity. If you can, it creates a lot of anxiety, which causes relational problems, obviously. But you also, your partner needs to be able to rely on you. And you still need to be able to rely on yourself. You need to be able to follow through with your own stuff. You know, I see a lot of people in relationships, if they're not in an interdependent relationship, they actually stop being able to rely on themselves because Mm -hmm. they'll throw all their agreements they have with themselves out the window just so that they can do what their partner needs them to do all of the time. And so when you're looking at relationships, you really want to, you know, look for, is there respect? Do I feel respected? Do I respect them? Are we responding to each other? Are we attuning? And are things mostly reliable for us? Are we committed Mm. to each other? Do we know what we're getting out of this? Is our contract clear? Mm. And when you have those three things, you can build a pretty interdependent relationship. Yeah, what I like and how you're talking about this is that it's, again, kind of putting three entities into the room, right? It's putting each individual and then the partnership, you know, my relationship with myself, my relationship with you, and then my relationship with whatever we're creating here together. And inside of that kind of interdependent dynamic, there are going to be people who, you know, we could talk about this in terms of somebody's attachment style or whatever else. They lean a bit more into wanting to connect. Maybe they lean a bit more into wanting to push away or something else entirely. Um, And often common theme inside of relationships is that people who kind of want to connect a little bit too much often end up with people who kind of want to push away a little bit. When do you see that inside of the office? How do you kind of work with couples to navigate this, understanding that there's going to be like a lot of individual difference here? One of the things that we talk a lot about with that is how some of that is personal preference. And so what about this can we accept and honor about the other person? And that might look like saying, you know what? My partner loves alone time. And this actually plays out in my own marriage, right? My partner Mm -hmm. is a musician. He loves to be down in the basement, like working on music and audio and all sorts of stuff. I'm a therapist. I love to connect. I want to be with people (laughs) all the time. (laughs) And so... Part of this is nothing pathological. Yeah. And one thing I work with people on is like, well, you know, which parts of this do you need to accept and Mm. find a way to love and respect about the other person? (laughs) And for my partner and I, we've been able to do that. You know, I can say, this has nothing to do with me. I really love how you like your alone time. I'm going to give it to you. And I'm also going to learn from you. I'm going to learn how I can take alone time as well. And Mm -hmm. he learns from me. He learns how to spend more time in connection. But he also respects that while he might not love a six-hour Thanksgiving dinner, I sure do. And so he goes. (laughs) So the first piece is what can you accept? The other thing I do in the office is I talk about anxiety. Mm -hmm. So some of this is not personal preference. Some of this is anxiety. Yeah. What is making you feel unsafe? to do the thing your partner wants. Mm. Your partner wants space. What's going on that's making that feel scary to you? And so it's triggering anxiety. It's making you feel afraid of what? People will say all sorts of things. I'm afraid that they don't love me. I'm afraid we won't connect. I'm afraid we'll never talk about the important things. Great. So now we know there's anxiety. The same on the other. Mm. Your partner really wants to connect with you. What's making that scary? What's the anxiety about leaning towards your partner, connecting, spending time with them, with their loved ones? All sorts of answers. Mm. It's going to take up too much of my time. It's going to, you know, engulf me, suffocate me. I'm not going to have my autonomy respected. And when people can start to put those anxieties out on the table, then what we do is we talk about, well, how can you soothe yourselves? What resources do you need so that you can do some self-soothing? But also, since we're in a relationship, 
How do you soothe each other? Mm-hmm. What can you offer as reassurance? And you need both of those things. The anxious pursuer for connection needs to be able to soothe themselves mm-hmm. in order to offer space. And the anxious avoider needs to be able to soothe themselves when it's really hard to be vulnerable and connected. What I love about this is that I think that what happens a lot, and you'd know better than I would, but is that it's really easy to kind of construct a idealized version of another person where we wouldn't have a problem if they were just more fill in the blank. And so the problem becomes all about our partner. You know, if the partner were just different in these meaningful ways, well, I would be fine then. And of course, there are examples, if you get into any instance of abuse, anything like that, where like, yes, the issue is your partner. But a lot of the time for like normative problems inside of relationships, the problem can get solved two ways. It can get solved by either them changing in a meaningful way or you changing in a meaningful way. And sometimes like the dance is deciding where you're meeting in the middle in terms of like how much are they changing and how much am I changing. But I just like the responsibility aspect that you're introducing here in terms of like, well, what are your tendencies around this and how could you soften around them a little bit? Yeah, yeah, I love that. Like what is the piece that you can take responsibility for? And that's something I talk about. You know, do you have the willingness Mm -hmm. to move forward to move differently without waiting for your partner to do it. Because that's going to give you the most information. Mm -hmm. You know, if you start moving differently and they still don't, well, that's important to know. But if you start moving differently and they move in a way that works for you with Mm -hmm. that, that's great. Yeah. And, And then you didn't need to just sit around and wait for them to change because something started to shift. Yeah, totally. And if you're up for it, Liz, I would like to just kind of play a little game here toward the end of our conversation together. Part of this is because I love your Instagram and I follow you and I think your stuff is great. And so I went through Instagram and I actually grabbed some popular kind of memes and quotes that you see all the time on social media about relationships. And I don't think that like social media is a perfect example of how people really think about relationships, but maybe it captures like a little bit of the zeitgeist. And I I just want to kind of say one here and then have you give me your first thoughts on it, like a two-minute take on this thing. Is it something that you basically agree with, something you don't, offer a little context, push back on it, whatever you want to do. Does that sound good? Yeah, let's play. Yeah, okay, great. So <laughs> let's start with the first one, which I think should be fun. I think that I actually saw you like offer some commentary on this at one point. Okay, it's just this one. Couples should be able to share everything with each other. Mm. <laughs> that has my least favorite word in it, which is should. <laughs> <laughs> I actually think we've I already have, got problems. We already have problems in like the second word of the sentence. I think I have like a whole section in my book about the word should. <laughs> so as soon as you start saying anything should, what happens mm-hmm. is you start to create expectations that are unrealistic and that don't take into context, like what's actually happening, who's actually a part of the dynamic. And so first of all, just don't love the word should. There is are very few shoulds in life. Second though, couples shouldn't know, it was couples should know everything you're thinking. Should be able to share everything with each other. Yeah. They shouldn't really. And I'm using mm. the word should. <laughs> <laughs> because privacy is a part of autonomy. Mm, mm -hmm. And privacy is really important. And if you lose autonomy, you create codependency. And so Mm. should they, you know, and I keep using this word, but, you know, ideally, would we be able to feel comfortable enough saying anything we want to? I think that's kind of the heart of what this is getting at. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I, you know, I think that is a goal. Like if I wanted to share this deep thought that I'm having, I could if I wanted to. Mm, mm-hmm. because I'm safe with this person. Maybe they would be angry at the thought. Maybe they would be upset. Maybe they wouldn't agree, but I could share it. But should I have to share everything? Should I, you know, and I I just don't think that's true because I think there are so many things that are our private thoughts, our private beliefs mm, mm-hmm. that are ours. And I don't know that that all needs to be shared all the time. Yeah. A a distinction that I saw you draw recently is this distinction between privacy and secret keeping. And I think that it really kind of gets to the core of this. Like there are secrets that we probably shouldn't be keeping inside of our relationships. But I do think that most people are 
entitled to a degree of privacy, just like you're saying, about their their intimate thoughts. Yeah, and I'm glad you brought that up. I don't want this yeah. to be a hall pass for secrecy. So yeah. when we have secrecy, there's impact on the other person. You know, mm. you have a really bad belly ache that's giving you bathroom problems. Yeah, don't need to share that <laughs> if you don't want to. That's private, not impacting yeah. your partner. <laughs> Unless it's like a long-term belly ache that maybe they need to know about yeah. so they can help you. You see someone you think is attractive, but there's no thought about acting on it. Private thought, maybe. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. I know that's a hard one to swallow for for many of us, but privacy is is good. It's holding on to a self. Secrecy, on the other hand, can be malicious and harmful. Great response. And okay, so second one here. I see this a lot. It's some version of your partner is your ride or die. (laughs) Find someone you'll stand by no matter what. Would you really stand by somebody no matter what? <laughs> I, I can't think of anyone I would stand by no matter what. I mean, and, and you're just saying what's kind of in my head about this. Like, I don't really believe in unconditional anything, but I don't know what your take on that is. Yeah. I mean, I think that maybe unconditional love exists with our children. That's oh, that, that's so funny. That's literally what I wrote down as like my caveat. Like the, the obligation a parent has with their kid yeah. is kind of the only one that I would say. Yeah. Unconditional acceptance, certainly not right? Like Mm. if my child did something horrific, I I probably, I would not accept it. I would still love Mm. them. Of course, that's just my, I I love my child so much. But unconditional love in adult relationships doesn't make a lot of sense to me Mm. because there are conditions to our adult relationships. You know, you might feel love. And here's the other caveat. Some people will say, but I still feel love for the person, even though I did set a boundary and da, 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 da. Sure. You might feel that totally fine. And your love can be conditional. You can say, you know, if you cross a line, a line around values, ethics, if you abuse me in any way, you don't have my love anymore. Mm -hmm. But it doesn't actually even need to be that deep. Like sometimes people fall out of love and It's not because someone did anything horrific. The love was conditional in a time and a place. And things changed. You know, their interests Mm. changed. They aged. Their goals, their dreams, all of that. And they they fall out of love. And so ride or die, of course, it's a meme and people enjoy it. And it's fun. And my husband and I probably have said it to each other before. (laughs) But in reality... No one is your ride or die, and you are not anybody's yeah. ride or die because there should be a line. There should absolutely be a line that you would draw. Yeah, no, right there with you. Okay, I think that this one is maybe a little bit more neutral, and I'm just kind of curious what your thoughts on it are. Never go to bed angry. Yeah, so I don't agree with it, but I think mm-hmm. that I know what it's getting at. And so, yes, it's it's a little more neutral. What it's getting at is don't go to bed without reassuring the other person you love them. Hmm. I think that's what it means. You know, when I've heard people use that in earnest, like they're truly talking about it, what I get the sense that they mean is like, come on, don't go to bed letting the other person think you hate them and you're never going to talk about it. Mm -hmm. Go to bed. If there's an argument, I love you. We'll talk about this. It's going to be okay. Yeah, yeah. And... The reality is sometimes you're going to go to bed angry. And sometimes if you keep trying to talk about something when the other person's angry and you say, but we can't go to bed when we're angry. And this is where I've seen this spin out, this advice. Mm, mm -hmm. We're not supposed to go to bed angry and you must not care about me because you're not talking to me right now. Mm. But when people are flooded, like actually really angry and in their bodies, they are like in threat response, please let them go to bed. You want them to go to bed because they'll respond to you better once they sleep and once the stress hormones are dumped from their bloodstream, they will be a way better conversationalist. So Mm. try not to go to bed without reassuring your partner you love them. Try really hard. And sometimes you're going to go to bed angry with each other. Just a huge part of what you're saying here gets to the idea of just allowing emotions to settle a little bit, which doesn't always happen. I mean, you want to be a little thoughtful about it, but like sometimes you just need to take some space and you just need to cool off and walk around the block or go to bed or whatever it is that you need to do in order to let some of the more like powerful emotions that you're dealing with in that moment kind of resolve themselves a little bit. Yeah. 
So this kind of gets to something that we were talking about a little bit earlier, but you will see this kind of all over the place. It's often got a very beautiful, puzzly image attached to it. And it's some version of my partner is my missing piece. Yeah. So again, cute. It's cute. And <laughs> I think very adorable. It's adorable. And I think when we really love someone, it can feel like they've added a piece to our puzzle that wasn't there before, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. I think that that can become problematic if you believe that you yourself are not whole without this person. Because then what mm-hmm. happens is you can, you know, tend towards codependency and thinking, like, I can't exist without them. And because I can't exist without them, I can't set boundaries. I can't have my own interests. I can't end this relationship if it's not good. And it also puts a ton of pressure on the other person to be your yeah. missing piece because mm. they have to live up to that. They have to live up to being your piece. Why aren't they their piece? They're all of a sudden your piece. They need to fit into your puzzle. And you're asking this human that's already created their own shape to change it to fit with you. So Mm. that's where it can become problematic. Where I think it's cute is if you can expand it to, it's not my missing piece, but it's a beautiful additional piece to my life. Or, you know, my partner is another puzzle that I get to play. (laughs) Like maybe we could expand it in that way. I like that. Yeah, no, I had actually never thought about the part of it that you just mentioned in terms of like forcing somebody else to modify themselves to be inside of your puzzle. I'd been, you know, a little too egotistically self-centered about it prior to that. So thanks for that distinction. (laughs) I like that a lot, actually. That's really good. Um, Okay, so last one, and I had to do it because you see it everywhere. It's absolutely pernicious. It is the classic quote, if you can't handle me on my worst day, you don't deserve me on my best day. (laughs) I'm really glad you threw it in because it was probably my AIM away message at some point when I <laughs> <laughs> we all we all go through our you know our course in life. All of us. I think anybody who had yeah. AOL Instant Messenger, that was that was there with like the hot pink font and all mm, sorts of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, I have since moved away from that quote. Thank goodness. <laughs> and again, and this is, you know, my therapist part coming out where I understand where some of this can pull us in. Mm -hmm. It is beautiful to think that another person is going to be there for you better or worse, of course. And if we have a partner who like doesn't want to be with us when we have the flu and we've been vomiting, maybe that's where this quote works. (laughs) Like, yeah, Mm -hmm. if you don't want me to be a human then I don't know if you deserve me when I'm beautiful, if you don't want to be in a relationship with me, you know, when I've been breastfeeding all night with my my infant. But what this quote does accidentally or whatever is it becomes a free pass for really harmful behavior, I think, sometimes. Yeah. And the way I see it being used is not what I just described in terms of I want a partner who sees my humanness. I see it being used as an excuse and a justification for being harmful. You know, if you don't want to be with me when I throw a temper tantrum, then you don't deserve me when I'm being nice. And something about it is a, it's a little manipulative. Mm-hmm. It's a little abusive, right? Like I could I could hear someone in an abusive dynamic saying something like that. Well, this is just who you get. You know, if you don't like me when I'm drunk and screaming at you, and you don't love me then, then you don't get me when I'm sober and fun, or you don't get my money, Mm, or you don't mm -hmm. get sex, or whatever it is. And I think it can tend to be more harmful than it is helpful. But I would love to hear your thoughts as well. I mean, I just think that I almost only ever see it applied in that problematic context that you're describing here, basically. I mean, whether it's, it's gross instances of abuse, okay, that's like a very much a distinct category. But even just like much more kind of everyday, just sort of being a dick to other people, levels of abuse, where there's this kind of idea that if you are a generally conscientious person, 70% of the time, it excuses your behavior for the 30%. And I just don't think that that's true. I think that we should aspire to be like a generally conscientious person 95 to 99% of the time. 
understanding that everybody's got some lapses. So yeah, so it's just, it's the one that I see the most frequently that I think I also probably think is the most misguided. I agree. And as I was listening to you talk, I was thinking Mm -hmm. it's just such an extreme form of defensiveness as well. Yeah, totally. Like it's this inability to say, yeah, wow, that was really wrong of me. Mm -hmm. And you don't deserve that. You don't deserve being treated like that. It somehow flips the script to you don't yeah. you don't deserve me because you didn't want to put up with it, which is this yeah. really kind of interesting form of defensiveness instead of being able to take responsibility for the behavior and recognizing who's the one really not deserving of the treatment in that moment is the person who was harmed by whatever happened. And like you said, most of the time it's the daily ways that were jerks, right? Mm-hmm. And it can be used in in more extreme ways as well. But I think something that's really hard for so many of us to do, but so important is just to be able to recognize you're a human and you're a jerk sometimes. And instead of expecting people to not have feelings about that or reactions to that, being able to just take responsibility and to learn to, to detach from the shame that's kind of blocking mm. you from taking that responsibility. I think that's a great point. I also think that it is just a lovely note to kind of tie together that section on that idea of taking responsibility for our own jerkishness, which emerges, I think, for everybody at some point in their life, is such a key skill inside of our relationships and is often a really challenging thing to do because it activates those like negative self-worth feelings, those feelings of shame and otherwise. So as we kind of come to the end here, Liz, is there anything that you would like people to know about? Any projects you're working on, places they can find you? Yeah. So you can find me easily on Instagram at Liz Listens. It's probably the easiest place to find me. I'm also the head therapist at a company called Ours. So you can find more information about us at withours.com. And I have a book out called I Want This to Work. It is a guide for relationships where I talk about a lot of the things we just talked about today. And you can find that anywhere books are sold. Liz, thanks so much for doing this today. This was totally great with you. I had so much fun. Thank you so much. So today I had a great time speaking with Elizabeth Earnshaw, also known as Liz Listens on Instagram. She's the founder of A Better Life Therapy and the author of I Want This to Work. So we began by talking about some of the issues that couples have faced over the last 18 months or so of pandemic and how some couples have gotten a lot better and other couples have gotten a lot worse, but relatively few have just kind of chugged along business as usual. And it's interesting that the pandemic hasn't been neutral for that many relationships. To summarize for the couples whose problems were based on not having enough exposure to each other, well, those partnerships improved. Suddenly there was more time with the family or more time at home. Then on the other hand, there are many partnerships out there where more proximity actually makes their challenges worse. And particularly for partnerships that struggle to manage stress inside of the system well, Wow, the pandemic was incredibly challenging. We then talked for a little while about ways that people can manage stress, and we mentioned co-regulation and dysregulation. A kind of simple way to think about co-regulation that Liz used as an example is what does a parent do with a child? When a baby is throwing a tantrum most of the time, it's not really effective for the parent to just get mad at the baby. You lower your voice, you hold your body in a more soothing way, Maybe you go for a little bit of gentle physical contact with the child, patting their head, rubbing their back, whatever it really takes for the child to understand that they are safe and held by another person's nervous system. And in much the same way, we can offer this to our partner. So we use the example of somebody coming home from work who's just really frazzled, they're blown out, they've had a tough day. They get in the door, they're carrying some nervous energy or some stress energy with them. And then for the partner who's there at home waiting for them to walk in the door, wow, the tenor of the whole space changes. And that change is often really disruptive for us. It can activate our nervous system and get us to respond negatively to the person entering the space. And this is just a total relationship disaster, a communication disaster waiting to happen. So what can we do on our side of the street to regulate ourselves and maybe regulate our partner a little bit? And at the same time, if you're the person who's entering the space, who's carrying that stressful energy, 
what can you do to take a couple of breaths before you walk in the door and try to calm your system down a little bit? We went from there to talking about Liz's kind of four-stage model of relationships that she talks about in the book. The four stages are infatuation, where we are first getting to know our partner and all of the love hormones are very freely flowing inside of ourselves. Then there is realization when we start to see them for who they actually are. Then there's tension, and tension inside of a relationship is often an indicator that it's progressing, that it's moving through the stages. And many couples stay in tension for most of the relationship, or they kind of move in and out of tension as time goes on. And then finally, there's acceptance. Can you accept your partner for who they are? Not forgiving them for everything, and not accepting behaviors that are unacceptable, but generally speaking, understanding that their tendencies are their tendencies, and you might need to make a couple of concessions to accommodate those tendencies. And then, hopefully, they do the same thing for you. Liz flagged a couple of key things to look out for when you're considering either getting into a relationship with somebody, staying in a relationship with that person, or otherwise deepening your relationship with them. The two that she flagged as critically important were how people handle power and then how people handle the four horsemen, which are these four communication styles identified by John and Julie Gottman that are particularly damaging for relationships. The four horsemen are criticism, defensiveness, stonewalling, and contempt. And Liz gave a great rundown on what each of those looks like. Then I really emphasized repair as one of the key things to look for in a partner. Are you with somebody who knows how to repair with you? Or at the very least, are they open to the idea of repair? Breaks of rapport are going to happen in every relationship. There's really no avoiding them. There's no such thing as a perfectly smooth relationship. So the question then becomes not, do we have breaks of rapport, but what do we do when these breaks of rapport happen? Essentially, how do we repair them? So if you find yourself with a partner who won't repair the lack of repair, they're not open to taking responsibility for their actions, they're not open to apologizing for the things that have happened in the past, Wow, it's very, very challenging for that to be a sustainable long-term relationship. Finally, we closed the episode by playing a little game where I grabbed a whole bunch of Instagram memes and shared them with Liz and kind of got her feedback on them. We started by talking about the difference between privacy and secret keeping, how there's some things where, you know, maybe it's appropriate to not share it with your partner. Then we talked about the idea of not unconditional anything. You'll see phrases like ride or die a lot on social media, which basically means that you're going to stick with somebody no matter what. And the reality is that our adult relationships, by and large, have conditions attached to them. And that's okay. That is really perfectly healthy. And then we spent a little time with, if you can't handle me on my worst day, you don't deserve me on my best day, which we both think just gives people a really inappropriate pass for their bad behavior. If you've been enjoying the podcast, we'd really appreciate it if you would take a moment to subscribe to it through the platform of your choice and maybe even leave a rating and a positive review. It really does help us out. Also, if you'd like to support the podcast in other ways, you can find us at patreon.com slash beingwell. And for the cost of just a couple cups of coffee a month, you can support the show and you'll get a bunch of bonuses in return, like expanded show notes, ad-free versions of the episodes, and transcripts of everything that we produce. Finally, hey, you can tell a friend about the show. It's truly the best way for us to reach new people. Until next time, thanks for listening.